The Lady with the Hatchet. Is Your Excellency prepared to tell me that the Lady with the Hatchet is not a madwoman? Renin interrupted himself and went up to Monsieur de Lortier Vano. What's the matter, Your Excellency? Are you unwell? No, no, said Monsieur de Lortier with the perspiration streaming down his forehead. No, but all this story is so upsetting. Only think, I knew one of the victims, and then... Renin took a pitcher of water and a tumbler from a small table, filled the glass, and handed it to Monsieur de Lortier, who sipped a few mouthfuls from it, and then, pulling himself together, continued, in a voice which he strove to make firmer than it had been. Very well. We'll admit your supposition. Even so, it is necessary that it should lead to tangible results. What have you done? This morning I published in all the newspapers an advertisement worded as follows. Excellent cook seeks situation, right before 5 p.m. to Hermeny, Boulevard, Haussmann, etc. You continue to follow me, don't you, Monsieur de Lortier? Christian names, beginning with an H and consisting of eight letters, are extremely rare, and are all rather out of date. Hermeny, Hilary, Hermione. Well, these Christian names, for reasons which I do not understand, are essential to the madwoman. She cannot do without them. To find women bearing one of these Christian names, and for this purpose only, she summons up all her remaining powers of reason, discernment, reflection, and intelligence. She hunts about. She asks questions. She lies in wait. She reads newspapers, which she hardly understands, but in which certain details, certain capital letters, catch her eye. And consequently, I did not doubt for a second that this name of Hermione, printed in large type, would attract her attention and that she would be caught up in the trap of my advertisement. Did she write? asked Monsieur de Lortier Vanneau anxiously. Several ladies, Renine continued, wrote the letters which are usual in such cases to offer a home to the so-called Hermione. But I received an express letter which struck me as interesting. From whom? Read it, Monsieur de Lortier. Monsieur de Lortier-Vanneau snatched the sheet of paper from Renin's hands and cast a glance at the signature. His first movement was one of surprise, as though he had expected something different. Then he gave a long, loud laugh of something like joy and relief. Why do you laugh, Monsieur de Lortier? You seem pleased. Please, no, but this letter is signed by my wife. And you were afraid of finding something else? Oh no, but <laughs> since it's my wife... He did not finish his sentence and said to Renin, Come this way. He led him through a passage to a little drawing room where a fair-haired lady with a happy and tender expression on her comely face was sitting in the midst of three children and helping them with their lessons. She rose. Monsieur de Lortier briefly introduced his visitor and asked his wife, Suzanne, is this express message from you? To Mademoiselle Hermony, Boulevard Hussman? Yes, she said. I sent it. As you know, our parlor maid's leaving, and I'm looking out for a new one. Renine interrupted her. Excuse me, madame, just one question. Where did you get the woman's address? She flushed. Her husband insisted. Tell us, Suzanne, who gave you the address? I was rung up. By whom? She hesitated and then said, Your old nurse. Felicienne? Yes. Monsieur de Lorche cut short the conversation and, without permitting Renine to ask any more questions, took him back to the study. You see, monsieur, that pneumatic letter came from a quite natural source. Felicienne, my old nurse, who lives not far from Paris on an allowance which I make her, read your advertisement and told Madame de Lorche of it. For, after all, he added laughing, I don't suppose that you suspect my wife of being the lady with the hatchet. No, 
Then the incident is closed, at least on my side. I have done what I could, I have listened to your arguments, and I am very sorry that I can be of no more use to you. He drank another glass of water and sat down. His face was distorted. Renine looked at him for a few seconds, as a man will look at a failing adversary who has only to receive the knockout blow, and, sitting down beside him, suddenly gripped his arm. Your Excellency, if you do not speak, Hortense Daniel will be the seventh victim. I have nothing to say, monsieur. What do you think I know? The truth. My explanations have made it plain to you. Your distress, your terror, are positive proofs. But after all, monsieur, if I knew, why should I be silent? For fear of scandal. There is in your life, so a profound intuition assures me, something that you are constrained to hide. The truth about this monstrous tragedy which suddenly flashed upon you, this truth, if it were known, would spell dishonor to you, disgrace, and you are shrinking from your duty. Monsieur de Lortier did not reply. Renine leant over him and, looking him in the eyes, whispered, There will be no scandal. I shall be the only person in the world to know what has happened, and I am as much interested as yourself in not attracting attention because I love Hortense Danielle and do not wish her name to be mixed up in your horrible story. They remained face to face during a long interval. Renine's expression was harsh and unyielding. Monsieur de Lortier felt that nothing would bend him if the necessary words remained unspoken, but he could not bring himself to utter them. You are mistaken, he said. You think you have seen things that don't exist. Renine received a sudden and terrifying conviction that, if this man took refuge in a stolid silence, there was no hope for Hortense Daniel. And he was so much infuriated by the thought that the key to the riddle lay there, within reach of his hand, that he clutched Monsieur de Lortier by the throat and forced him backward. I'll have no more lies. A woman's life is at stake. Speak, and speak at once. If not... Monsieur de Lortier had no strength left in him. All resistance was impossible. It was not that Renine's attack alarmed him, or that he was yielding to this act of violence, but he felt crushed by that indomitable will, which seemed to admit no obstacle, and he stammered, You're right. It is my duty to tell everything, whatever comes of it. Nothing will come of it, I pledge my word, on condition that you save Hortense Daniel. A moment's hesitation may undo us all. Speak, no details, but the actual facts. Madame de Lortier is not my wife. The only woman who has the right to bear my name is one whom I married when I was a young colonial official. She was a rather eccentric woman, of feeble mentality and incredibly subject to impulses that amounted to monomania. We had two children, twins, whom she worshipped, and in whose company she would no doubt have recovered her mental balance and moral health when, by a stupid accident, a passing carriage, they were killed before her eyes. The poor thing went mad with the silent, secretive madness which you imagined. Some time afterward, when I was appointed to an Algerian station, I brought her to France and put her in the charge of a worthy creature who had nursed and brought me up. Two years later, I made the acquaintance of the woman who was to become the joy of my life. You saw her just now. She is the mother of my children, and she passes as my wife. Are we to sacrifice her? Is our whole existence to be shipwrecked in horror, and must our name be coupled with this tragedy of madness and blood? Renine thought for a moment and asked, What is the other's name? Hermance. Hermance. Still that initial, still those eight letters. 
That was what made me realize everything just now, said Monsieur de Lortier. When you compared the different names, I at once reflected that my unhappy wife was called Hermance, and that she was mad, and all the proofs slept to my mind. But though we understand the selection of the victims, how are we to explain the murders? What are the symptoms of her madness? Does she suffer at all? She does not suffer very much at present, but she has suffered in the past, the most terrible suffering that you can imagine. Since the moment when her two children were run over before her eyes, night and day she had the horrible spectacle of their death before her eyes, without a moment's interruption, for she never slept for a single second. Think of the torture of it, to see her children dying through all the hours of the long day and all the hours of the interminable night. Nevertheless, Renine objected, it is not to drive away that picture that she commits murder. Yes, possibly, said Monsieur de Lortier thoughtfully to drive it away by sleep. I don't understand. You don't understand because we are talking of a madwoman, and because all that happens in that disordered brain is necessarily incoherent and abnormal. Obviously. But all the same, is your supposition based on facts that justify it? Yes. On facts which I had, in a way, overlooked, but which today assume their true significance. The first of these facts dates a few years back, to a morning when my old nurse for the first time found her moss fast asleep. Now she was holding her hands clutched around a puppy, which she had strangled. And the same thing was repeated on three other occasions. And she slept. Yes. Each time she slept, a sleep which lasted for several nights. And what conclusion did you draw? I concluded that the relaxation of the nerves provoked by taking life exhausted her, and predisposed her for sleep. Renine shuddered. That's it. There's no doubt about it. The taking life, the effort of killing, makes her sleep. And she began with women what had served her so well with animals. All her madness had become concentrated on that one point. She kills them to rob them of their sleep. She wanted sleep, and she steals the sleep of others. That's it, isn't it? For the past two years, she's been sleeping. For the past two years... She's been sleeping, stammered Monsieur de Lortier. Renine gripped him by the shoulder. And it never occurred to you that her madness might go farther? That she would stop at nothing to win the blessing of sleep? Let us make haste, monsieur. All this is horrible. They were both making for the door when Monsieur de Lortier hesitated. The telephone bell was ringing. It's from there, he said. From there? Yes. My old nurse gives me the news at the same time every day. He unhooked the receivers and handed one to Renine, who whispered in his ear the questions which he was to put. Is that you, Felicien? How is she? Uh, not, not so bad, sir. Is she sleeping well? Not very well lately. Last night, indeed, she never closed her eyes, so she's very gloomy just now. What is she doing at the moment? She's in her room. Go to her, Felicien, and don't leave her. I can't. She's locked herself in. You must, Felicien, break open the door. I'm coming straight on. Hello? Hello? Oh, damnation, they've cut us off. Without a word, the two men left the flat and ran down to the avenue. Renine hustled Monsieur de Lourtier into the car. What address? Ville d'Avray. Of course, in the very center of her operations, like a spider in the middle of her web. Oh, the shame of it. He was profoundly agitated. He saw the whole adventure in its monstrous reality. Yes, she kills them to steal their sleep as she used to kill the animals. It is the same obsession, but complicated by a whole array of utterly incomprehensible practices and superstitions. 
She evidently fancies that the similarity of the Christian names to her own is indispensable, and that she will not sleep unless her victim is a Hortense or a Honorine. It's a madwoman's argument. Its logic escapes us, and we know nothing of its origin, but we can't get away from it. She has to hunt, and has to find. And she finds and carries off her prey beforehand, and watches over it for the appointed number of days, until the moment when, crazily, through the hole which she digs with a hatchet in the middle of the skull, she absorbs the sleep which stupefies her and grants her oblivion for a given period. And here again we see absurdity and madness. Why does she fix that period at so many days? Why should one victim ensure her a hundred and twenty days of sleep and another a hundred and twenty-five? What insanity! The calculation is mysterious and of course mad, but the fact remains that, at the end of a hundred or a hundred and twenty-five days, as the case may be, a fresh victim is sacrificed. And there have been six already, and the seventh is awaiting her turn. Oh, monsieur, what a terrible responsibility for you. Such a monster as that. She should never have been allowed out of your sight. Monsieur de Lortier Vano made no protest. His air of dejection, his pallor, his trembling hands all proved his remorse and his despair. She deceived me, he murmured. She was outwardly so quiet, so docile. And after all, she's in a lunatic asylum. Then how can she... The asylum, explained Monsieur de Lortier, is made up of a number of separate buildings scattered over extensive grounds. The sort of cottage in which Hermance lives stands quite apart. There's first a room occupied by Felicienne, then Hermance's bedroom and two separate rooms, one of which has its windows overlooking the open country. I suppose it is there that she locks up her victims. But the carriage that conveys the dead bodies? The stables of the asylum are quite close to the cottage. There's a horse and a carriage there for station work. Hermance no doubt gets up at night, harnesses the horse, and slips the body through the window. And the nurse who watches her? Felicienne is very old and rather deaf. But by day she sees her mistress moving to and fro, doing this and that. Must we not admit a certain complicity? Never. Felicienne herself has been deceived by Hermance's hypocrisy. All the same, it was she who telephoned to Madame de Lortier first about that advertisement. Very naturally. Hermance, who talks now and then, who argues, who buries herself in the newspapers, which she does not understand, as you were just saying, but reads through them attentively, must have seen the advertisement, and, having heard that we were looking for a servant, must have asked Felicienne to ring me up. Yes, yes, that is what I felt, said Renine slowly. She marks down her victims. With Hortense dead, she would have known, once she had used up her allowance of sleep, where to find an eighth victim. But how did she entice the unfortunate women? How did she entice Hortense? The car was rushing along, but not fast enough to please Renine, who raided the chauffeur. Push her along, Adolphe, can't you? We're losing time, my man. Suddenly the fear of arriving too late began to torture him. The logic of the insane is subject to sudden changes of mood, to any perilous idea that may enter the mind. The madwoman might easily mistake the date and hasten the catastrophe, like a clock out of order which strikes an hour too soon. On the other hand, as her sleep was once more disturbed, might she not be tempted to take action without waiting for the appointed moment? Was this not the reason why she had locked herself into her room? Heavens, what agonies her prisoner must be suffering! What shudders of terror had the executioner's least movement! Faster, Adolphe, or I'll take the wheel myself! Faster, hang it! At last they reached Ville d'Avray. There was a steep, sloping road on the right and walls interrupted by a long railing. Drive round the grounds, Adolphe. 
We mustn't give warning of our presence, must we, Monsieur de Lortier? Where is the cottage? Just opposite, said Monsieur de Lortier Vano. They got out a little farther on. Renin began to run along a bank at the side of an ill-kept sunken road. It was almost dark, Monsieur de Lortier said. Here, this building stands a little way back. Look at the window on the ground floor. It belongs to one of the separate rooms, and that is obviously how she slips out. But the window seems to be barred. Yes, and that is why no one suspected anything. But she must have found some way to get through. The ground floor was built over deep cellars. Renine quickly clambered up, finding a foothold on a projecting ledge of stone. Sure enough, one of the bars was missing. He pressed his face to the window pane and looked in. The room was dark inside. Nevertheless, he was able to distinguish at the back a woman seated beside another woman who was laying on a mattress. The woman seated was holding her forehead in her hands and gazing at the woman who was lying down. It's she, whispered Monsieur de Lortier, who had also climbed the wall. The other one is bound. Renin took from his pocket a glazier's diamond and cut out one of the panes without making enough noise to arouse the madwoman's attention. He next slid his hand to the window fastening and turned it softly, while, with his left hand, he leveled a revolver. You are not going to fire, surely, Monsieur de Lortier Vano entreated. If I must, I shall. Renin pushed open the window gently, but there was an obstacle of which he was not aware, a chair which toppled over and fell. He leapt into the room and threw away his revolver in order to seize the madwoman, but she did not wait for him. She rushed to the door, opened it, and fled with a hoarse cry. Monsieur de Lortier made as though to run after her. What's the use, said Renine, kneeling down. Let's save the victim first. He was instantly reassured. Hortense was alive. The first thing that he did was to cut the cords and remove the gag that was stifling her. Attracted by the noise, the old nurse had hastened to the room with a lamp, which Renine took from her, casting its light on Hortense. He was astounded. Though livid and exhausted, with emaciated features and eyes blazing with fever, Hortense was trying to smile. She whispered, I was expecting you. I did not despair for a moment. I was sure of you. She fainted. An hour later, after much useless searching around the cottage, they found the madwoman locked into a large cupboard in the loft. She had hanged herself. Hortense refused to stay another night. Besides, it was better that the cottage should remain empty when the old nurse announced the madwoman's suicide. Renine gave Felicien minute directions as to what she should do and say, and then, assisted by the chauffeur and Monsieur de Lortier, carried Hortense to the car and brought her home. She was soon convalescent. Two days later, Renine carefully questioned her and asked her how she had come to know the madwoman. It was very simple, she said. My husband, who is not quite sane, as I have told you, is being looked after at Ville d'Avray and sometimes I go to see him without telling anybody, I admit. That was how I came to speak to that poor madwoman, and how, the other day, she made signs that she wanted me to visit her. We were alone. I went into the cottage. She threw herself upon me and overpowered me before I had time to cry for help. I thought it was a jest. And so it was, wasn't it? A madwoman's jest. She was quite gentle with me. All the same, she let me starve. But I was so sure of you. And weren't you frightened? Of starving? No. Besides, she gave me some food now and then when the fancy took her, and then I was sure of you. Yes, but there was something else. That other peril. What other peril? she asked ingenuously. Renine gave a start. He suddenly understood, it seemed strange at first, though it was quite natural, 
that Hortense had not for a moment suspected and did not yet suspect the terrible danger which she had run. Her mind had not connected with her own adventure the murders committed by the lady with the hatchet. He thought that it would always be time enough to tell her the truth. For that matter, a few days later, her husband, who had been locked up for years, died in the asylum at Ville d'Avray, and Hortense, who had been recommended by her doctor a short period of rest and solitude, went to stay with a relation living near the village of Bassicourt, in the center of France. <laughs> 